I echo Max's sentiments. The saints of Grace Bible Fellowship in Baton Rouge send their greetings um, to the folks here in Cheetah. And um, they are praying for you tonight, praying for me as well. So um, if you have a Bible, turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. And while you're turning there, I remember hearing one fellow say one time, he said, you know, I think it was Conrad who actually said it. He said, you know, it's the devil's job to wear down the saints. The preacher doesn't need to be helping him out with a long sermon or a boring sermon to wear you down tonight. So we're not going to try and do that. We're going to hopefully get into God's word, understand it as clearly as we can. And um, Lord willing, be changed by it. <clears throat> I want to talk to you this evening on the sins of the fathers. Tomorrow we'll be talking about the sins of the sons. And I get that from Jeremiah 32, which you can get from Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, in the middle of the Decalogue, where he talks to them about practicing idolatry and how God will visit the iniquity of the fathers onto the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And he says in chapter 32 of Jeremiah in verse 16, and this is after Jeremiah had purchased a, uh, a deed of land in Jerusalem to kind of give people the hope that they're going to come back in 70 years and he'll be able to say, see, God's got this hope for you that you're going to come back and possess the land. And so after he does this, he says um, in verse 16, after I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, then I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thine outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee, who showest loving kindness to thousands, but repayest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. O great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. But now notice how it switches in verse 19. Great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to every one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 29, there was this proverb going around Jerusalem during that time that the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the kids' teeth are set on edge. Or to use common language, it's the dads who are eating the candy, but the kids are getting the cavities. In fact, the exiles in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 2, have the same thing. They're saying the same little proverb. Well, God gets irritated with that proverb. In fact, he tells Ezekiel in chapter 18, he says, you're not going to use this proverb anymore. That the fathers eat the sour grapes and the kids' teeth get set on edge. All souls are mine. The soul that sins, that's the soul that dies. The father sins, the father eats the sour grapes, it's going to be the father's teeth that are set on edge. If the children eat the sour grapes, it's going to be the children's teeth that are set on edge. And boy, he makes it very clear. And he gets into the weeds of all the different case law with that in chapter 18. If you've got a righteous guy and he does this, or if you've got an evil son and he does that, or you've got a good father or a bad father, and he tries to show all the little different kind of Venn diagrams of how they can fit together, to show that you are responsible for your own actions. And I'm going to judge you, O house of Israel, based upon what you do. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, 
It's an interesting passage. Verse 16. Moses says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Sounds like what he's saying in Ezekiel chapter 18. So we've got this tension here. What does he mean visiting the iniquity of the fathers onto the children? Sounds like their teeth are getting set on edge. Fathers are doing something over here, nefarious. And the kids are getting something visited upon them because of what dad did. So how are we supposed to make heads or tails of both of these truths? Because God doesn't um, contradict himself. Both of these things are true in the scriptures. And you've got many, many examples of what we're going to look at tonight about this whole idea of how the fathers get their sins, their iniquities visited upon their household. Now, that's just a truism. You find it all, the, all through Scripture. I'll give you a little smattering of it, okay? <clears throat> you got, for example, uh, Leviticus chapter 4, where he talks about when the priest sins, which causes Israel to sin. Wait, time out. The priest sin, not, but it's causing Israel to sin. But this is his sin. He did something wrong, and it's causing Israel to sin. But that's right. Achan stole the bar of gold, right? And who got punished for it? Not just Achan. Entire family and everything he owned stoned and burned. And when Korah rebelled against Moses in the book of Numbers, who got swallowed up? Everything Korah had. Animals included. Servants. Everything. Now you kind of look at that and you say, you know, it kind of sounds like Children with serrated-edged teeth with cavities are going down because of the sins of dad. And I've got Bible here that says that's not happening here. Every, di- every person dies for his own iniquity. So how come they're getting punished for what dad did? Now that was prevalent, rife back during the time of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. In fact, it was so rife, it was also part and parcel of the thinking in the first century. John's Gospel, chapter 9, what happens in chapter 9? The disciples are walking with Jesus, and they point somebody out to Jesus, and who is it? The man born blind. And what do they say to Jesus about the man born blind? Yeah, who caused this guy to be born blind? Was it his sin or what? Or was it dad's sour grape eating that caused him to be born blind? Now, at that point, Jesus could have turned to Ezekiel 18 and said, well, haven't you read? We're not going to use that proverb anymore. You know that that's not true. But he says, no, it's for the glory of God. But the same Jesus who says that in John 9 is going to say in Matthew 23, when he's condemning the Pharisees and says, all the blood shed from Zechariah the prophet who was slain between the altars all the way to this time is going to come on this generation. Sounds like they're going to get nailed from stuff that goes all the way back. Was well, that causing them to pay for sins that somebody else committed? 
Now, some people take this, go overboard with it, and deal with things like generational curses, ancestral hexes. And the reason why you're like this is because mom and dad are like that. Well, some of that's not too far off the beaten path, to be honest with you. And you've got a lot of science behind some of that. There's a high um, percentage of alcoholism, for example, among American Indians. And that's been going on for generations. Or they say, you know, the reason why I'm like that is because I got those genes from my parents. Well, that's why I'm a homosexual. I can't help it. My teeth are set this way. Don't you get it? My mom and dad had those homosexual teeth, and I got those teeth. It just kind of flows down family lineage. Kind of like, you know, you got a bunch of people in your family with blue eyes and red hair. You're probably going to have kids that are going to have blue eyes and red hair. Both spouses have those kind of dominant genes. We see that. You see that many times with people with bipolar depression and they say well you know my mom and dad i mean you can read the percentages in the dsm-5 manuals of the psychiatric bible that people who go and who live through a divorced environment are higher likelihood when they get married to divorce their spouse well it sounds like they're getting punished for something mom and dad did so how are we supposed to understand what this is all about? One of the top five movies in, that's ever been made, um, The Godfather, is all about that. What's that famous line Michael Corleone says to his girlfriend at the beginning of the movie? I'm not like my dad. I'm not like, he's exactly like his dad. He's going to be a killer as ruthless as his dad. That's the whole point. And so you see the generational visitation of the iniquities of the father. So how are we supposed to make this? Because when you go back and you read it in Exodus chapter 20, when God says this, he puts this in the middle of the, of the Ten Commandments, and he puts it right there in the middle of this particular commandment dealing with idolatry. And he says, I'm a jealous God. You worship false gods. Let it be known. Your sin that you're committing and you're practicing when it comes to idolatry is going to be an environmental sin. It's going to be a contagion that's going to get caught by your family. I guarantee you, you practice that sin, I'm going to indoctrinate your kids as a punishment on your house. And you're saying, why, why would he put the kids in this kind of situation? Because here's the whole point of the message when it comes to the sins of fathers, just like the sins of pastors or the sins of presidents and senators. People in leadership positions have a position of responsibility. And when you have that position of responsibility and you sin in that position of responsibility, you not only incur guilt for yourself, you pass on to the people that you're responsible over, not your guilt. That's the point he's making in Exodus 18. Dad gets drunk, and drunkenness is a sin. That's dad's sin. Dad gets drunk, 
and piles the kids in the car and takes it for a joyride, drunk, that's its responsibility. And whatever happens on his watch with his kids in that car is his irresponsibility as a head. And so think about this for a second. Every single one of you that are here are here as the result of somebody else's irresponsibility. And you say, oh, that's not true. I can name one, at least Adam. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, he says, because through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin because of what one man did, all people die. He doesn't say because one sin. He says all people die because all sin. Now, how did all sin when he's been talking about one person sinning? Because you're in him. He's a representative head. And as such, when you're in him, the things he does, you do. Now, that's very bad news for us because, you know, I got born here. I never got the opportunity to check the box. You want to be a sinner or not? Sinner, non-sinner? Mm, yeah, okay. Mm, I don't know. What you checking? Non-sinner, sinner? I didn't get that choice. I came on board, and I'm a sinner. I came on board, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, born under the wrath of God. By nature, children of wrath. As Al Martin says, coming in with a bad record and a bad heart. Got to teach my kids or teach my grandkids how to tie their shoes. I don't have to teach them how to lie. It comes naturally. Comes with the package. Because somebody, a father, did something. Now, I wasn't in the garden. I didn't eat the fruit. I mean, I wasn't there. I didn't even know what it tastes like. I couldn't tell you what it looked like. Then the day that you eat, you shall surely die. And I was in Adam. Well, the good news is the second Adam, second Adam he's called. And funny, it's not Adam and Eve. It's Adam. Eve's not ahead. Adam is. That's why it's Adam. And it's not all of his sins, it's the first sin. That's what sends us over the cliff. That's why he says in Romans chapter 5, all the things that Jesus Christ did, all of his righteousness, it was that one act of righteousness on the cross. It parallels that one disobedience in the garden of Adam, the first Adam. That one act of obedience. Jesus had many, many acts of obedience, but it was that one. That one going to the cross, taking on the wrath of his Father, taking on your sins, and he obeyed. And God says, I'm going to, it's the same transfer. You're in the first Adam, and you come in here a sinner. You're in the second Adam, you're a saint. I didn't do anything on that cross. What did I add on the cross? Nothing. What did I add in the first garden? Nothing. See, the parallel's got to stay the same, or it breaks down. And all of a sudden, I'm contributing to what Jesus did on the cross. I can't do that. That's Catholicism. I, didn't, I can't contribute nothing to my salvation. That's what you heard. Zero. We're poor in spirit. <laughs> Bankrupt. With a capital B. But just as a father of ours sinned and entered into that and caused all these things for us, a second Adam entered into that righteous act and caused us to be right and holy in the sight of God. 
And if you're in that second Adam, just like you can't help yourself in the first one to do nothing but sin, you can't help yourself to do nothing but practice righteousness. You're going to do it. And thing one, you can do about it. You're regenerated. You're converted. Try and not practice sanctification. You'd be like a fish out of water flopping on the bank. The most miserable people on the planet are Christians trying to act like sinners. Real, regenerated, elect Christians in Christ acting like sinners. It's not a more miserable creature on the planet. They're so contrary to nature. Just like the guy over here who's in the first Adam, and he's not in the second, and he's trying to act religious. It's so hypocritical. He's trying to act as if he's holy. He's like a fish out of water. Both of them are like fish out of water. Contrary to their natures. Contrary to what their fathers have done. So the sins of the fathers. What are we to make of, of, of these things where it talks about whether I'll, uh, you know, I'll read about, for example, another, I mean, got example after example. There's a famine in the land in 2 Samuel. David begins to inquire and says, why there's a famine in the land? God answers him and says, because of what Saul did. Well, what Saul did? He put the Gibeonites to death. They give you a nice for those people back in the book of Joshua that snuck in and made some vow with Joshua. Remember, they said, we've come from a far place, and really they were inhabitants in the land. They should have been killed. And God warned them about making treaties with people in the land. They, anyway, they, all right, you made a treaty with them. You can't kill them. Well, Saul thought he was doing something great and grandoise for God by killing these people. Well, God says, you can't do that. And so David goes to the Gibeonites and says, look, um, we found out that there's a famine in the land, and it's because of what Saul has done to your people, your house. What do you suggest we do about this? The Gibeonites, that's what the Gibeonites say. They say, give us seven of Saul's sons that we may hang. We don't want gold, we don't want silver, we don't want this and that or whatever. We want, kind of, we want that so that justice will be done. Now you look at that and you say, now wait a minute. This is the sons getting put to death for what Saul did. This can't be right. Go a couple of chapters later in 2 Samuel. Last chapter, if you read it in the book. David, just a harebrained idea to number the people with a census. Now, there's nothing wrong with numbering the people. The problem is David didn't number them right. When you number the people according to the book of Numbers, you're supposed to take a poll tax. He didn't do it. So be, he sins greatly against the Lord. Well, the Lord comes to him through the prophet and says, you got three choices here of how I'm going to discipline you. I can do this, I can do this, or I can give you three days of pestilence. Three months on the run from your enemies, seven years of famine, or three days in the hopper with me. And he's, I'm throwing myself on the mercy of you. Well, God chooses for him and does the three days. Kill 70,000 Israelites for what? One man day. Now you look and you say, how, how can that be? Here's 70,000. In fact, you read it, David says, he says, stop. He begins to say, Lord, I'm the one who sinned. What do these sheep have done? If you're going to take it out, take it out on me and my father's house. He begins to see, wait a minute, this, this, this can't be. But the judge of all the earth always does right, even if we can't understand it. 
Now, to try to get some sense to this, try to understand some, maybe some rhyme and reason to why a lot of this is like it is, like this in Scripture, you need to understand, first and foremost, when God says he's going to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, it does not mean that the children are going to be guilty of the father's sins. That's the express point of Deuteronomy 24, 16. Sons shall not pay the price for the father's sins. The guilt doesn't transfer. But it does not mean that the contamination doesn't. The environmental aspect of that indoctrinating, idolatry-worshipping, Gibeonite-killing, things of this sort, doesn't. When you bring in idolatry into your household, you automatically open up your children to the possibility of worshiping idols. God says, I'm, I'll see to it they get educated. You open them up to the possibility of them being incited in their passions toward the idolatry. Until finally, they're actually participating in the idolatry like dad. And God can judge them on his own right, just on general principle, because of what they're doing now in worshiping idols. How do they get evangelized into idolatry? Thank you very much, Dad. And God says, I'll see to it that they get converted. Now, they're not guilty for the worshiping of idols that Dad did, but boy, God, Dad sure brought in the virus that spread through the family. So the first thing you need to understand about this sin that's being the, the visiting of the iniquity unto the, the sons from the fathers. It's not a transfer of guilt to guilt. That's the whole point of, of Ezekiel 18. You are not, the sons are not going to be put to death for the father's sins. Well, there's a passage, I think it was in 2 Kings 14. It says, And as soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand, he struck down his servants who had struck down the king his father. Now that sounds like equity. He struck down the people who killed your dad. Great. But he did not put to death the children of the murderers. The children of the murderers. According to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. But each one shall die for his own sin. He knew the law. But that's not true for the Amalekites. Amalekites are like the people of Canaan. God tells Saul to do what in 1 Samuel 15? You go in there and you strike down the Amalekites and you leave nothing alive. Zero. You treat it like the city of Jericho. I want everything destroyed. Anything that has breath, that has any kind of a brand mark on it called Amalekite is to be destroyed. I don't care if they're old. I don't care if they're young. I don't care if they're animals. Totally destroyed. Saul had a better idea and it cost him his kingship. All souls are mine, he says in Ezekiel chapter 18. And since all souls are mine, I can dispense with them as I see fit. Now let's see if we can get a little bit more into the, uh, the detail of how children find themselves paying, it looks like, it looks like, for the guilt of their fathers when they didn't do what their fathers did. That's not fair. Here, I'm suffering. I've got a cavity because dad's eating candy. 
God wasn't going to put up with that. He says, no, that's not true. I'm not transferring, transferring his guilt to you. He kills somebody, he goes to jail. I don't come and, you know, cops come and take you away too because you're, you're his son or something. Doesn't work that way. But you need to understand this kind of sin that gets passed down. I call it an environmental sin because it's, it's a sin that has a social effect, a community effect. You are here and you are the recipients of much irresponsibility that's been foisted upon you by others around you, whether it's leaders and whatever kind of position they might be in. And I hate to break the news to you, you're doing it to others. And they're learning from you. Mom, dad. Sunday comes around, you, you take your kids to the ballpark, you don't take them to church, and then you wonder why later on when you want them to be in church as adults with their kids and they're not. But I mean, you taught them that. Well, I never taught them that. Yeah, you did. You taught them something else that's more important than church. Well, I never said that to them. You didn't have to say it. These kind of things are caught. They're not taught. I don't know why they don't read their Bible. Well, because, you see, you don't read yours. And so you begin to realize that, you know, if you open a crack in the door, the next generation is going to take it off the hinges and open it. That's just how it is. And then they're going to be passing down sins to the next generation. You ever wonder, you know, when you, when you read Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and he says, now the wrath of God is revealed. He didn't say the wrath of God is hidden. He didn't say, well, you wait till you see what God does when he puts people in the lake of fire on judgment day. That's the wrath of God to come. That's the wrath of God we can't see right now. But in Romans chapter 1, you can see it clearly. It's revealed. It's a cancer of the soul, whether it's of an individual or an entire culture. Now think of what cancer is. You've got stages of cancer. Starts off with the suppression of the immune system. Well, there's a suppression of truth here. They suppress the truth about God. They don't want to see Him and honor Him and give thanks and things of this sort. They suppress that truth. So what does God do when you suppress the truth? Sits on His hands? Waits to throw you into the lake of fire at the end of your life? No. Oh, no. You're hauled in the court that day, and you're judged that day, and you receive the wrath of God that day. Well, what does it look like? Well, this is what it looks like. You lose appreciation for God, you're going to start losing orientation toward thinking. That's what he says. Claim themselves to be wise, they became fools. They thought they were wise here, thought they could do this, this, and this. Oh, you think you can do that, huh? Because when you suppress the truth here, like whack-a-mold, another thing's going to come up. And what's going to come up? Ah, those moles are going to be in the form of idols. Always in the form of man, animals, and things of this sort. So the creature becomes a little bit more razzle-dazzle and appealing to our eyes than the Creator. And so we start going after the creature. We start appreciating the creature more. We start elevating the creature more. And preachers can start doing that. Got whole entire theologies called Arminianism, devoted to what? The power of man, the free will, and things of this sort. Man, man, man can do this. 
because it's all about man. You know how they got that way? <laughs> Look at the first stage of the cancer. They did not honor him as God. They didn't give thanks. The simplest thing in the world to do, the simplest thing you can do is to give thanks. Even Thanksgiving isn't called Thanksgiving. It's called Turkey Day. People have no concept of God anymore. And so this cancer begins to metastasize. He says, okay, you're not going to give me thanks, and you're going to start going after the creature? I'm going to give you the creature. The way, God, the way God's wrath is revealed against sin is he gives you more sin. Now, you would think, now, wait a minute, that almost sounds, <laughs> that almost sounds like a sinner's dream. Wait a minute, I don't get this straight. When you tell me you're mad because I'm eating candy, you're going to give me more candy as punishment? Yeah, I'll take that deal any day of the week. That's how a sinner thinks. Not realizing he's going to get more cavities. Not realizing he's going to get diabetes. Or not realizing all these other things that's going to crop up. You lose that appreciation for God, you start losing your orientation in thinking. You start losing your orientation in thinking, all of a sudden you start losing this entire ability to be human. The loss of humanization. You can worship those animals? Well, guess what? I'm going to give you the very appetites of those animals you're worshiping. And all of a sudden, you start thinking with your genitals instead of your brain. And he kicks in your libido into high. And all of a sudden, he gives you over to impurity. And what started looking, what started with just looking at magazines, right? All of a sudden it gets developed into an uncontrollable masturbation, an uncontrollable porn addiction, an uncontrollable desire to have sex with women and to have more sex and more sex and more sex. And guess what? When you do that, he doesn't sit on his hands. It's judgment day. It's wrath constantly. Then he turns you over to something that's not even natural. Then you start hankering at people of your, of your own sex. That's what he says in Romans 1. That's a signal sin. You know, I call it a signal sin. In the medical world, it's called a biomarker. A biomarker is something that shows up on the scan. Well, let's see if you got breast cancer. I don't know if you got that. Let's see, and you get the mammogram and everything. They can't find anything. But it runs in my family. It's the sins of my ancestors. So I need to make sure that I don't, you know, I need to get, okay, make sure, makes sense. But something comes up and there's a bright spot, that's a biomarker. Homosexuality is a biomarker. It's a theomarker when it comes to the wrath of God. I mean, that's what the text says. And if you haven't gotten used to the terminology, it's called gay Christians today, side A and side B. Side A is people who believe in gay Christians. You can, have, you can be homosexual and be a Christian. Side B are people who say, well, no, God frowns on homosexuality, but it's okay to have those depraved passions as a Christian. Because remember, Paul says, such were some of you. Remember, 1 Corinthians 6, he saved them, right? Such were some of you, thieves, swindlers, homosexuals. And I couldn't understand, somebody comes out of that culture, comes out of that kind of lifestyle, they want to become a Christian, they find they're being tempted and things like that. I get it. Every single one of you come out of something, and you got that kind of temptation, but you don't glorify that temptation. You don't glorify that desire. There's no such thing as a covetous Christian or a swindling Christian or a prideful Christian. You call yourself by that moniker, you're not a Christian. 
So a gay Christian is an oxymoron. There's no such thing. And to call yourself that and to go by that reveals you're not that. Now, I'm sharing this with you because going back to square one, we got this way because of the sins of the fathers. Well, the fathers, you mean they, they did those things? Oh, no. <laughs> they might have been doing something in stage one and stage two, but you're going to start living in stage three and stage four. That's what Jesus means by the blood of all these people that you killed. You're part and parcel with them. You participate with them. You're of the same ilk with them. It's not as, no, I'm not punishing you for what they did. I'm punishing you because you would do the same thing. You have the same heart and you have the same desires. Then after you have the loss of humanity, you have a loss of civilization. He gives them over to a depraved mind. And you got people cheerleading these things. Because it says it in Romans chapter 1. They give hearty approval. You got people actually thanking God that they're homosexuals. Now, you, know, you can cut that darkness with a knife. But you, if the light in you is darkness, as Jesus says, and you're calling that light in its darkness, the lights have gone out on the road to hell. But my point is, how did they get that way? They got that way because grandpa and dad and great-grandpa are complicit. And they failed in their responsibility. That's why you find in the book of Daniel, you'll find in all these other people, when they pray and they start asking God to forgive them of their sins, and they confess the sins of their fathers, and how they got there, and how they got here. They dropped the ball. It's their guilt. They got to answer for it. But that repercussion of what they did, and God didn't sit on his hands when he gave them wrath for that. We're eating the fruit of that, of that. I'm not guilty for what they did. But I got to live in that environment of what they did. I got to swim in that cesspool that they created. And God saves people in those cesspools. He does. But if you wonder where the cesspool comes from, or you wonder why your family's the way it is, you need to ask yourself many times, Lord, do I have a part in this? Help me. As a, as a person in a position of authority, am I causing any of these things? So let's get back to our illustration about the drunk dad driving the car, having a car crash, and the kids die. And you say, you know something? Those kids died because of what that, that dad did. Well, you can, yeah, I, you can see the correlation there. But those kids did not die for the sins of their father. They were sinners on their own. The soul that sins dies. How God wants them to die and the occasion God wants them to die is up to God. And he says, you know, many times I'm going to put that occasion squarely in the lap of the man who has that authority as a head over his household even though they're guilty in their own right. So Achan's family, while they didn't steal the wedge of gold, if they knew about the wedge of gold and that it's under the ban, why didn't they go report it? Why did they let dad keep it? Why didn't they side with God versus siding with dad? Dad comes into the, into the house with Babylonian garments and, and gold and things of this sort, and you don't think they don't know about that thing? The God, the God of all the earth is going to judge right. If he puts that entire family to death, they knew about that gold. They knew about what he did, and they were silent about it. And you know what happened? The next day, 
Israel went out to fight the people of Ai and 36 people died on their watch because they didn't report it. They're guilty of 36 deaths of the Israelis against the citizens of Ai. Of course, Joshua's all discombobulated. How in the world? How did we get defeated? He says, because they're sitting in the camp. Somebody has taken something that was devoted to destruction. And anybody who touches those things and keeps it for themselves, I got to treat them just like I treated Jericho, which was to destroy Jericho and raise it to the ground. And since they're part of that now, I got to treat them the same way I treated Jericho. And that's why they were treated so harshly. They became Jerichoites overnight. They traded uniforms. They left one army and joined another. And God treated them as such. Dad did the stealing of the gold, but they were complicit. But being a sinner, God can take you out at any time and judge you for your sins. You know that. But especially when it rolls up and you find yourself inside the house of someone you're responsible to submit to. Joe Biden goes to war with Hamas. I'm at war with Hamas. I didn't ask to go to war with Hamas, but I'm at war with Hamas. He's a representative head of the United States, and I'm a citizen of the United States. So technically, if he's at war with Hamas, and some guy from Hamas comes over here, I'm a legitimate target. Didn't ask to be one. Didn't volunteer to be one. Didn't send my way into being one. Didn't get out there and say something bad about it. It's just, that's just how it is. I'm part of that house. Same thing with Korah. So individuals can be judged individually for their own sins. God can take the occasion of the father's irresponsibility and make that happen. So that's how you have both can be in play. Where you have the sons do not get punished for the guilt of the father's sins. But they can reap the repercussions of that father's sins because of their proximity to their father. The complicity with what their their father did they can learn from their father and actually become partners in crime with their father they can do all kind of things because of what their father is doing when a father sins or substitute anybody else for father a leader or whatever else he causes others to come into that close proximity that contagion and he's going to pass that covid virus down and they're going to catch it on their own and practice it on their own and think like that on their own and their generation is going to be like that. That's why it says in Exodus chapter 20, he says, I'm going to do this to the third and fourth generations to those who hate me. Hate me? Ah, oh, so those third and fourth generation people are people who do what? They hate me. Now, how did that happen? Because see, when you worship idols, you make a statement about God and his worth. I mean, you got to I mean, worship Yahweh, you got to go over here, you got to do this and this, but you worship Baal, you go over here, they got the prostitutes, they got the party, they got the Mardi Gras going. Let's see. Which one is appealing to the flesh more? Of course they're going to go worship Baal. You do that, you marginalize me, this is what you invite to your house. And this is what you're going to get in, in return. You're going to teach your kids something. And trust me, I'm going to make sure their appetites are piqued toward that. They're going to see what, what dad does. That's why you had in the, in the prophets, and they were rail against the uh, I think it's in Jeremiah where he says, a father and son visit the same prostitute. Well, where did your son learn that from? From dad. 
That's just how it is. Sins of the fathers. Tomorrow, Lord willing, what we'll look at is this idea of the sins of the sons, the decisions you make, how you are responsible for your own actions, and how your own actions are yours and yours alone. Like that father when he sins and he decides to, to, to get drunk, that's his guilt. And you can't pawn that off on anybody. Nobody. And when you're irresponsible, you can't get rid of it unless God forgives you of it. And God does. And what we'll see, in, especially in Ezekiel 18, how God will bless those who turn to him. He doesn't have to. He can just say, sorry, son, you made this bed, you're going to lay in it now. You reap what you sow. Here you are planting tomato, tomato seeds and you want me to give you a crop of corn. That just ain't going to happen. But God has other ways of, of frying fish to get his, his grace and mercy to overcome all those sins of the fathers. So here you are, saved by the grace of God. Here you are, you grew up. Maybe you had an abusive father. Maybe you didn't even have a father. And so you pat yourself on the back, which we'll see tomorrow, and you start playing the blame game to excuse your sins. Can't work. It won't work. But we can show how we connect the dots to why we think a certain way, act a certain way, feel a certain way. And a lot of that you got from the people around you for those in positions of authority. Now, having said that, it's very easy to blame them and say, well, see, Ezekiel 18, not my fault. And we're going to see how all this, how you think and how you speak and how you act, it's totally your fault. It's totally your responsibility. Everything you do. And God isn't going to take your excuse, Adam, and say, well, the woman thou gavest me, she gave me of the fruit, and I ate. And I'm sure... We could read between the lines. God would say, and your point is? I'm, I'm not quite following the narrative here. Help me here, Adam. Uh, what are you trying to say? Here's the bottom line question for you, Adam. Yeah, she did all those things. You're right. She did those things which you just said. My question is this. Who ate the fruit? Who was told not to eat the fruit? Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Did you or did you not eat the fruit. Yeah, but that serpent. Yeah, but that woman. Yeah, but that whatever. You ate it. Soul that sins, it will die. And we'll see how God overcomes those things tomorrow for us on an individual basis. Our responsibility is great in our, and to practice these things and to do these things in such a way that Lord, we want to obey. Help me to obey. If I could just say, Lord, help me to obey and I don't contaminate anybody else. Wouldn't that be a great prayer? But I got other people watching me, learning from me, listening to me. Whether I'm in a position of leadership or I'm just in a position of salt and light. 
and I give a bad testimony about Christ and someone turns and says, well, I don't want to be a Christian because of that or whatever, I've influenced them. And God visited my iniquity on that person and blinded his eyes from seeing the glory because of a bad example on me. That happens all the time. And on judgment, he'll point to me and say, yeah, but he did this. And God's going to say the same thing he said to Adam. And your point is, see, and what are you trying to tell me? Because he did something here? You're off the hook there? Only thing, only thing here is me and you, bro. What did you do or fail to do? That's it. Nothing else matters. Nothing else is on the table. How do you answer that? Now think about that, kids, because if you're not a Christian, you can't go looking at mama and daddy. And you can't go second-guessing this and second-guessing that. You're not a Christian tonight? I'm going to tell you why you're not a Christian tonight. You don't want to be one. Let that sink into your head. Don't go putting it off on anybody else. Yeah, but he ate the sour grapes. <laughs> no, you're eating them. And you're choosing to eat them. And you're wondering why you're getting the cavities. And you're wondering why your heart's getting hardened. And you wonder why you're going from stage one to two to three in the book of Romans. You're choosing that. It's your choice. And we'll see how that plays out tomorrow. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for your grace to overcome our sinful hearts. Father, you know we come into this world underneath your wrath. You know, Father, that individually we had nothing to do with our personal guilt in the garden in eating of that fruit. But at the same time, Lord, we did in our representative, Adam. And we're so thankful, Father, that Jesus Christ is our representative and that you give us his righteousness and we didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't help him craft it. We didn't help him obey you. If anything, we were a detriment. But yet he did. And you came and you gave us of his righteousness. Our father in the faith. And what a house he has built. Of your people. Freely clothed in righteousness. Freely loving righteousness. Freely loving the brethren. Loving you. As the promise in Exodus 20. And showing loving kindness to thousands. For thousands of generations. And it reached even us those waters from Ezekiel's temple, Father, that start around the ankles, finally came to us. And you saved us. Another man's righteousness got imputed to us. A man who wasn't driving drunk, but was driving with righteousness. And the kids wound up clothed in the celestial city. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ and what he has done. We love you and we bless you. In Christ's great name we pray. Amen.